0: Hamlet podcast. Episode 173. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me your host Conor Hanretty. We reach a quiet little moment now with just Hamlet and Horatio on stage after the departures of Osric and that other lord. Horatio gets to express some genuine concern for his friend and has a warning for him. You will lose this wager my lord. We've heard what complicated odds Claudius has laid, but we've also been hearing how good a swordsman Laertes is. Horatio is rightly concerned that Hamlet will not win against him. But Hamlet seems not to think so, and he counters, I do not think so. Since he went into France, I have been in continual practice. I shall win at the odds. But thou wouldst not think how ill all's here about my heart. It is no matter. Hamlet actually thinks he will win. He proclaims that he's been in continual practice since Laertes went to France, whether his original departure for his studies there, or his return after the wedding back in Act I. Now, bear in mind, he also told Guildenstern and Rosencrantz that he had forgone all custom of exercise, We don't have to take everything he says to that pair at face value. It's been a long con with those two, so a pinch of salt is perhaps required. There have been fencing and hunting images throughout the play, but are they enough to give us a sense of Hamlet as a confident athlete? We know he likes to walk in the lobby at certain times of the day, but at least my image of him doing so has him with his nose in a book rather than with a sword in his hand. Either way, Hamlet himself is confident. Whatever we're to believe about his continual practice, Claudius has stacked the odds in his favour, so he'll have a lot less work to do to win than Laertes will. Hamlet seems on the brink of telling Horatio how he's feeling when he says, but thou wouldst not think how ill all's here about my heart. You can hardly imagine how bad everything is in here at my heart, he's saying, but he stops himself. It is no matter, matter again. Earlier in the play, Hamlet and many others have made jokes and comments about matter in a variety of different ways. The word has appeared about 30 times in the play, and this is the last. If you are of a mind to trace words and puzzles and imagery through Shakespeare's language, this would be one worth noting. This tiny little scene with Horatio is a turning point, because after this the final scene will begin. So here we have Hamlet refusing to worry about the troubles in his heart. He reduces them to no matter. And we have to pay attention to this shift. As ever, really, I feel bad for pointing out how often poor Horatio has little lines like this. The best friend interjects as if to encourage Hamlet to speak his mind. He says, Nay, good my lord. But this is all he gets to say as Hamlet stops him, almost as usual. Hamlet makes light of any concern and says, It is but foolery. But it is such a kind of gain giving as would perhaps trouble a woman. It is really nothing to worry about, he's saying. Foolery. Foolish even to have mentioned it. And now we get another unfortunate, if slight, dose of misogyny, whether cultural or Hamlet's own. Bear in mind, he hasn't exactly been a paragon of respect or equity towards the women in his life. He suggests that the gain giving, This misgiving or concern, this little thing that he almost mentioned, is really nothing, no matter. It's the kind of thing that would perhaps trouble a woman. As though women are troubled only by light things, or lucky enough not to have to think about the deep things, Hamlet himself has to ponder. Not a shining moment for him in this opinion, no matter how you look at it. Even if he is dismissing his own concern as unworthy of a man, it just sounds a little unfortunate nowadays. Horatio isn't even convinced. In the world of this play, gain-givings and doubts have led to serious problems when ignored. He insists that Hamlet be cautious. If your mind dislike anything, obey it. I will forestall their repair hither and say you are not fit. He's pleading with Hamlet. If something in your gut is telling you to stall, obey your gut. He will happily go and tell the King, Queen and everyone else not to come and set up for the fight. He'll say that Hamlet is not ready for it. He is not fit. Now, fit here isn't really in the modern sense of athletic fit or ready to fight, no matter how much Hamlet has been in continual practice. Instead, it's fit as in prepared or capable, fit for purpose, or in this case, in no fit state. Hamlet answers this concern with an extraordinary little speech. Not a whit. We defy augury. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man has ought of what he leaves, what is't to leave betimes? Not a whit, he says, refusing Horatio's offer. Not a bit, not a tiny bit of it. We defy augury, he says. He has no interest in fortune-telling, augury, or omens, or signs, or even gain-givings. There's no point in trying to predict the future, he means. Augury was the ancient practice of trying to spot omens in the patterns made by birds in flight rather neatly, Hamlet spins this idea here and goes from augury, which was specifically an ancient Roman religious practice, to a reference to the Gospel of Saint Matthew. In Matthew 10:29, the text says, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. I quote the King James Bible here, other translations might have different units of currency, but the point is very much the same. The message is that not even something as cheap as a little sparrow dies without God's being aware and involved. He has a plan for everything. Here Hamlet paraphrases and says there is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. Now, predestination was one of the major talking points of the Reformation, and perhaps the differing opinions of Martin Luther and John Calvin, among many others, would have come up during Hamlet's time in Wittenberg. We don't get much of a sense of what he thinks of the issue, other than to make the point that there is a plan for everything, for every human, and even for every sparrow. Moving on from the fall of the sparrow, then, he talks about his own death. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. If he's going to die now, he won't die later. If he's not going to die later, he will die now. If he's not going to die now, that death will come at another point. He certainly will die sometime. What's essential now is to be prepared for it, maybe even resigned to it. The readiness for this is everything. This is a very far cry from the Hamlet who, just a few thousand lines earlier, was wondering, to be or not to be, that is the question. The majority of that soliloquy was about death, about the wonder and fear that we have about this great mystery we all must face, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. At that point in the story, Hamlet acknowledged that fear of death, awareness of the danger of dying and fear of what might come after that, conscience does make cowards of us all. This pondering, this back-and-forth worrying about whether to act or not, to be or not to be, this is what many might identify as Hamlet's tragic flaw, that he can't make up his mind. But the scene we're in is such a startling contrast. I think this is the moment where the decision really seems to be made, one that Hamlet almost makes in front of our eyes. Because all that beautiful and poetic wondering is great, but there comes a time for more than thinking, when we are ready. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man has aught of what he leaves, what is't to leave betimes? This last fragment is a much debated piece of text. Different editions of the play have many different layouts, sometimes cobbled together from the versions of the folio and the second quarto, and even others. The meaning is likewise oft discussed, something along the lines of, since none of us knows what we are leaving behind, what should it matter if we leave this life early? Betimes meaning early. This is a far cry from the to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy, in which he's been so concerned with death being the unknown. Now here there's a sense that life is also an unknown. There are echoes of Seneca and Montaigne, both philosophers that Shakespeare certainly read, and we can perhaps assume Hamlet might have read them also. They both have passages that suggest that what happens after our time on earth no more belongs to us than the time before we arrived. Hamlet sense that Life is also a mystery, unknown to all of us, is a much calmer, rueful thought than the whirling fantasies of his earlier imagination. Now he is resigned and ready, and he finishes this little scene with just two more words. Let be. Whatever is going to happen, let it happen. I think about this scene a lot the one time I worked on the play for a performance, it was my favourite piece of the text to explore and to interrogate, and of course we wound up with just as many questions as we got answers. All of the philosophical ideas and problems are distilled into such spare, minimal language. It's really a remarkable piece of writing. Even the rhythm is a complete shift from the excited extravagance of to be or not to be. That great speech begins with six short monosyllabic words, but expands into about thirty lines of monumental imagery, bursting at the seams of the verse and including a great many feminine endings and extra vowels and feet and sounds, because the ideas in Hamlet's head are too turbulent to fit into a neat metrical pattern. It's rightly one of the most famous speeches Shakespeare ever wrote. And now we come here, towards the end of the play, to this little piece of prose almost all single syllables, until the big word tells us everything we need to know. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Every film, every superhero movie, every martial arts story, every journey of a hero novel worth its salt, has a moment like this when either the protagonist has nothing left to lose or, for whatever other reason, decides to advance and meet their fate head-on. This is Hamlet's moment. It's always Hamlet's moment, encapsulated in those two little words. Let be. Next week, the court will assemble for the big match, but in the meantime, be sure to visit the website, thehamletpodcast.com, for show notes with more information on Calvin and Seneca and Montaigne. Little would I ever have thought of listing those three thinkers in the same breath. Thank you, as always, for joining me, and I'll speak to you in the next episode.